are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Our text this morning is just one verse in the end of Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Jesus says this, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Any, uh, any Lego fans in the audience this morning? Yeah, trending younger. Come on, adult fans of Lego. You guys can raise your hands. Uh, yes, thank you. Le- what about Lego movie fans? Yes, thank you. 2014, one of the best movies ever made. Some of my favorite lines come from that movie, especially there's this one scene where the villain, Lord Business, is trying to get a couple of minifigures, a couple characters to like hold in position, and they won't do it. They won't do what he wants, so he's gotten out his you know, super secret weapon, the craggle, the crazy glue, and he's just about to freeze them in place, but every time he tells them, okay, move your arm, move a little bit, you know, the one wanders off, and he's... Finally, in a moment of utter frustration, he just shouts at them, all I am asking for is total perfection. It's a great line. I use it all the time on my wife. All I'm asking for (laughs) is not much to ask for, right? Just total perfection. Now, the way Lord Business is going about doing it is using crazy glue to freeze everyone in place. The only way to make sure people are following the instructions, being completely perfect, is just freeze them, lock them in place, control everything they do. Now, you just heard one verse read where Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect. Does any of you hear it the way Lord Business intends it? Like Jesus is saying, you know, all I'm asking, after giving us all this instruction in chapter 5, all I'm asking is for total perfection. Does that sound like Jesus to you? The same Jesus who says, hey, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Good news. All I'm asking for is total perfection. Does that, does it sound like those things go together? See, I think sometimes we read 548, and especially if we read it all by itself, we might accidentally hear it more like Lord Business instead of like Lord Jesus. We might hear that that Jesus is saying, all I really want for you is for you to just be absolutely, totally, indisputably perfect. Okay, maybe perfection, total perfection, isn't the right way to look at this verse. There there might be a better way uh, to read it. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. What does Jesus mean by telling us, by commanding us to be perfect? Now, as we jump into just this one verse this morning, we're going to answer or try to answer at least three big fundamental questions. The first is, well, what is perfection? What does Jesus mean by perfect? What is perfection? The second big question is, well, what does that look like in our lives? We're going to fast forward ahead to Matthew chapter 19 just for a few moments to look at where there's another guy that Jesus calls to perfection and see how that that plays out. So what is this perfection? What, uh, what does it actually look like in action? And third, you know, how do you get it? How do you keep it? If this is what Jesus is calling us to, how do you get it? How do you keep it? How do you, how do you not lose it after you've found it? So let's jump into Matthew 5, 48. You, therefore, must be perfect. 
All right, we're going to start by answering that first question. What is perfection? Make sure we all understand what Jesus means when he uses a Greek word that we're translating into English as perfect. So to get there, we're going to go in kind of a, a roundabout way. So stick with me here for a few minutes. All right, Matthew 5.48, it's just one verse, but it comes at the end of, the, of course, the paragraph that precedes it, the love your enemies paragraph, but it also comes at the end of the first big chunk of Jesus' teaching from chapter 17, or sorry, chapter 5, verse 17, all the way through to verse 47. So this verse, verse 48, both summarizes the paragraph it ends and that whole first teaching section. Jesus has just spent a chapter, we've taken two and a half months, to look at these six different examples of Old Testament law that Jesus reads for us and then intensifies for us. He interprets them for us in the way we were meant to understand them as, as pointing beyond just external behavior, but pointing into the heart. And he summarizes all of that teaching by saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now the, the structure of this phrase, this verse may strike you as familiar throughout the Old Testament and in Jewish history, we see this kind of phrase used over and over again. You must be blank as God is blank, or as your heavenly Father is, and then the same word usually repeated. You must be loving as your heavenly Father is loving. You must be merciful as God is merciful. But probably the most famous version of it, the one you may have thought of if you're familiar with the Old Testament, is... You must be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. The phrase shows up multiple times, most especially in Leviticus, uh, that middle book of the first five books given uh, to the people of God by Moses. And multiple times we read variations on this phrasing, be holy for I am holy. Be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be holy, for I am the Lord your God. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Be holy, because I am holy. So you would have expected, perhaps, Jesus to say, you therefore must be holy, as your heavenly Father is holy. Because he uses the exact phrasing, that that exact formula, and yet changes the, the word. Instead of holy, he uses the word perfect. Now, why not say holy? You know, if you see something that you would typically expect to go in one direction, then it veers, usually that's on purpose. So why not say holy? Well, I think for the audience that Jesus is speaking to and the time in which he's speaking, especially the audience of, of Pharisees and other religious leaders, uh, if he'd use the word holy, well, the, word, the meaning of the word had, had shifted a little bit. Or at least not the meaning of it, but the understanding of it, sort of the way it was thought through and applied. See, when holy shows up, when the word shows up in the Old Testament, uh, it means devotedness. It means being completely devoted to one person or one thing. And because you're wholly devoted to that thing, holy with a W, I meant that time, um, because you're completely devoted to that one thing, then you're separated from everything else and responsible to be pure from those other things. So it's, it's because a person or a thing is fully devoted to one that makes it, that's what it means to be holy, that is then separated out from other things. 
for about 10 years or so, um, my wife and I shared a toothbrush. I still don't get why that's gross. I mean, we kiss like all the time. So, and we eat the same foods. Um, but enough of our friends ridiculed us that after a decade, we, the problem was we, had, we could only afford one of those fancy toothbrushes with the different you know, heads you would put on it, and we would keep forgetting whose was whose, and it's like, whatever, just don't even bother. So anyway, that, that strikes you as odd? I had somebody after first hour come tell me about traveling through another country, and their tour bus pulled into a rest, a rest stop, and in the rest stop was a spigot of water and a pile of toothbrushes that anybody could use, <laughs> and you would use the toothbrush and then put it back. Now, why, do, why does that intuitively hit us as like, that's not okay? <laughs> why? Because <laughs> the toothbrush, your toothbrush, is holy. Now, what I mean by holy is it's devoted only to you, right? You don't go into the bathroom where there's like five in a cup, the family bathroom, and just like, well, any one of them will work. Now you go and you find the one that is completely devoted to you. It, it is only for your teeth. And because it is only for your teeth, it has been separated from everyone else's teeth, right? And if we extend the analogy and we give our toothbrushes the uh, you know, ability to make decisions for themselves, then our toothbrushes are responsible to keep themselves pure from other people's teeth. Right? They can't just look around and be like, I don't know, his mouth looks pretty nice. Right? So because it is fully dedicated to you, it is separated from everyone else and kept pure from everyone else. The point, we could say the toothbrush is holy, and by that we don't mean just that the toothbrush doesn't serve anyone else. The important part is that it serves only you. It is devoted only to you. This distinction is important because we commonly think of holiness in terms of moral purity, right? Keeping yourself unstained from the world, unstained from other people's teeth in this analogy. But holiness doesn't mean just moral purity. That's a consequence of being holy. Moral purity is a consequence of being separated. Separated is a consequence of being devoted. It's about moving towards something, not just away from other things. Okay, so holiness means being dedicated to the one, therefore keeping yourself separated from the others. And this, this idea pervades uh, many of the things that we own and that we use. How many of you have church clothes? that are only for church. The point isn't that church clothes just need to be kept clean. It's that they're only for this thing, right? You have church clothes. You have inside shoes. You have good china. Those things would be pointless along with your toothbrush. It would be pointless if all you did was keep those things from being misused but never actually use them, right? If the point of holiness is simply to avoid sin, then the toothbrush that stays in the package is holy, but pointless because it's not dedicated to anyone. Now, this is important because the Pharisees understood holiness as moral purity, as separation from sin, as stepping away from the things that are impure, but not as a movement towards 
God. So they had rule after rule after rule to help keep them separated from sin. Right? If, if the law says do not work, well, then let's, let's add some more rules to that. Uh, you can't walk more than a quarter mile. You can't lift more than 10 pounds. You can't pull a rope or push a lever. Not because we're refraining from work in order to be fully dedicated to God, but because we're trying to avoid any sin. So we'll add more rules upon rules upon rules. But this is the exact wrong way to think about holiness. Holiness is not separation from sin. That's a consequence. Holiness is separation to God. Not just being separated from, but primarily being separated to, fully and completely dedicated to God. So why didn't Jesus say, you therefore must be holy as your heavenly Father is holy? Because to the Pharisees' ear, holiness meant external moral purity. It meant following the rules. It meant moral cleanliness. It meant keeping yourself from sin. If Jesus had used the word holy or said be holy, then the Pharisees would have heard all of chapter 5 that came before it as layering rules on top of laws. If adultery is bad, let's make a rule about lust so that we never go there. If murder is wrong, then let's make a rule about anger so that we never go there. Instead of seeing the law as driving into the heart, they would read what Jesus is saying as adding more layers, more rules, more ways to stay away from sin. But that's not at all what Jesus has been saying. As we've looked at this the last two, two and a half months, Jesus has been going through these six Old Testament laws, not because he's adding more layers, but because he's refocusing these rules more deeply into our hearts, as it was intended from the beginning. So to preserve the point that he's teaching us and to avoid being misunderstood, Jesus needs a different word than holy. So he chooses the word perfect. Of course, you may think that by using the word perfect, he's just doubling down on what I'm saying is the wrong way to think about these explanations of the Old Testament law. But that's because we tend to hear the word perfect the same way Pharisees would hear the word holy. It's all about, you know, absolute obedience to the law. No mistakes, absolutely no mistakes, no sin, no slip-ups, no nothing. All I'm asking for, Jesus says, is total perfection. All right, let's, let's dig into the word perfect. To the Greek-speaking hearers of Jesus' day, uh, especially those like the Pharisees steeped in you know, the Old Testament scriptures, uh, the word that he chooses to use, the word that we translate here as perfect, was not used to mean absolutely morally flawless. It was a word used for a whole kind of web of closely connected concepts that, that are all summarized with a central core meaning of, of wholeness or completeness. So this is the word you would use when you want to communicate the idea that a, a, a culture or a people group or society or like a, a church family or a regular family is whole, is working well together. Every member of the family is flourishing and finding well-being and the, whole, the family as a whole is flourishing and doing well. It's a church, it's a family that is, we've translated it with the word perfect. It doesn't mean 
It doesn't mean without problems. It means that's functioning well together. This is the word you would also use when you wanted to communicate the idea of an individual who is fully sort of self-integrated. There's no warring parts within you. There's no desires that are at battle with each other. There's no emotions fighting within yourself. You're whole. You're integrated. You're uh, another way of phrasing it. You're of of single purpose, single-minded. And it's because you're whole that you can be integrated, singular focused, and therefore genuine, reliable. So when the word is used in context talking about moral behavior... Uh, you know, right living before God, then we get ideas like blameless or trustworthy or wholeheartedly devoted. In fact, when, when this word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was in use at Jesus' time, uh, this is exactly what we find, blamelessness, trustworthiness, wholehearted devotion. So go back into Matthew five forty-eight, uh, and let's read it with, with all of that that we just talked about in mind. You, therefore, in light of these six interpretations of the Old Testament law, driving it down into how our hearts need to align with our outward behavior, says you, therefore, must be blameless, trustworthy, wholeheartedly devoted to God, just as your Heavenly Father is blameless, is trustworthy, is wholeheartedly devoted. Do you see the difference that makes? God is wholeheartedly devoted to his own glory. I mean, what about us? Whose glory are we wholeheartedly devoted to? Uh, His or our own? If we're we're following him, then we're called to be wholeheartedly devoted to his glory. Same with blamelessness, trustworthiness. You, Jesus says in verse 48, shifting to his disciples, unlike uh, the people he just mentioned before, the tax collectors, the Gentiles. You, on the other hand, you who have decided to follow me, you, therefore, must be not holy, not flawless. You must be whole, wholly oriented toward God, wholly devoted to God. You must be wholly oriented toward God, even as God, just in the same way that God is wholly oriented towards himself. This is where we need to hear just what the Pharisees needed to hear. The point of all of this teaching is not that we should be completely separated from sin. That's the result, not the cause. The point is that we are called to be completely separated to God. It's being completely separated to God, wholeheartedly devoted to Him, that results in moral purity. The point is not to move away from sin, but to move toward God. Jesus, in, in this verse, is not calling us to moral perfection. He's calling us to wholehearted orientation toward God. That results in, or tends towards, moral perfection. Now, not ever fully, completely in this life, we'll never achieve moral perfection, but we can make steps towards wholehearted orientation toward God. And it's wholehearted orientation or whole devotedness to God that actually gives us the tools we need when we're not morally perfect, 
when we're not morally righteous. If the law is simply you must be perfect, no blemish, no spot, no stain of sin, well, then what do you do when you mess up? But if the, if the command here is to be oriented towards God, then what happens when you become disoriented? You reorient. That's what the sermon is all about. Use another illustration from, from the kitchen this time. You've seen those cutting board collections that, you know, as seen on TV, or you can find them at Bed Bath & Beyond or whatever, that's uh, four or five different colored cutting boards. You know, like there's a green one with like a picture of vegetables on it, and a, and a blue one with a fish, and a yellow one with a chicken, and a red one with a cow. And you guys have seen these? Maybe? Okay, all right. First hour was very familiar with what these were, so I, I was afraid that my, this whole illustration was about to bomb. Uh, the point of these cutting boards, right, is that there's a picture on it, and you're only supposed to cut that food that's represented by the picture on that cutting board. This is how you uh, keep away from, like, cross-contamination with the vegetables and the raw meat and all of that stuff, right? Uh, so each one is dedicated to the one with the picture on it, you know, with an image on it, is therefore separated from all other meats or whatevers and is kept pure from those things. Now, what do you do when someone dense and unobservant like me grabs the green board and just slaps a raw chicken on it? What do you do <laughs> besides gasping? supposed to be set apart from the raw chicken and kept pure. Now what do you do? Well, if you're my wife, first you give me a good solid talking to, and then you set me to work cleaning the cutting board. Because with enough soap and elbow grease, then the impurity can be cleansed, the, the sin can be atoned for, and the green cutting board is now rededicated to vegetables only, never to co come in contact with chicken juice again until I go back in the kitchen. <laughs> right, you see the parallel? See, Matthew 5.48 and, and everything coming before it and the next two chapters to come after it are showing us how to reorient to full dedication to God when we have walked off of that path or off that direction. Jesus in these verses, and especially culminating in verse uh, 48, is, is showing us that the law is, is finally fulfilled in, in that greater righteousness, that righteousness that's greater than the Pharisees, when it's a righteousness that is not just external, but internal as well. It's not true righteousness when the internal desire is at war with the external behavior or the other way around. And it's this point, this mismatch of internal and external, this is exactly what he's about to excoriate the Pharisees for in the next couple of chapters. He calls them hypocrites over and over and over again. They're not hypocrites because they say one thing and then do something else. They're hypocrites, according to Jesus, because they do one thing while desiring something else. That the only reason they do what they do is because they're trying to be separated from sin and therefore not need God instead of being wholly dedicated, wholly oriented towards God. This verse and this idea of whole person righteousness being wholly oriented towards God, this is the key that the entire sermon hangs on. 
this is the main hinge point of the whole sermon because it's over and over and over and over again that Jesus shows us that the point has always been for the inside and the outside to match. For true righteousness to come from an internal disposition towards doing what God wants, being like God, doing what God will do when he returns. The righteousness that we're called to, the, the discipleship that Jesus wants for us, is a, a dedication to God that is, that is total, single, whole. So if, if you're the kind of person who writes in your Bible, I give you permission to circle that word perfect or, or, or even cross it out if you want. It, it's the common translation, but there's, there's, it's, the word is too loaded for the way we use it for it to really communicate what it needs to communicate here. It's, my suggestion is a little clunkier, and it, it's not going to fit very well, but right next to it or above it or draw an arrow and write in the margins, you know, you therefore must be wholly oriented towards God or wholeheartedly oriented towards God, just as your heavenly Father is. Jesus is calling us to whole person fellowship of God. It comes through, I want to show you what this looks like in action. It comes through in Matthew chapter 19. You, we're only going to be here for a moment, so you can turn there if you want, uh, but I'll summarize the story for you as I run up to verse 21. In Matthew 19, Jesus is teaching on a, a similar topic, and a, a rich young guy comes up to him and says, teacher, what do I need, good teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says, hey, basically, keep the commandments. And the guy asks him, well, which ones? And Jesus lists off, kind of rattles off a list and ends with, love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man responds, well, since my childhood, I have kept all of these commandments. What am I still missing? What do I lack? And so Jesus responds in verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, then go. Sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So here's a, here's a rich young guy who has lived his whole life in obedience to the commandments, wholly separated from sin as best as he could, but not separated wholly to God. So Jesus challenges him, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be wholly oriented, singly, singularly focused on one thing, on God, sell everything you have and, and give it all away. Now, there's no Old Testament law that says to follow God, you have to sell everything. There, there's no law that says in order to follow him, you have to be poor. You have to get rid of all that you possess uh, and give everything you have to charity. But, I mean, Jesus knows uh, where this guy's heart is divided. He's interested in following, you know, the letter of the law, growing in external righteousness, but not so much in seeing how the law, especially that command to love your neighbor as yourself, how that would work itself out through his possessions and his neighbors. It's one thing to want to be holy, to be perfect, to be completely separated from sin. It's an entirely other thing to want to be completely separated to God. 
So Jesus made it plain to him, you can only go in one direction. You can either go with your money or you can go with your God. And he walked away. Turn back to chapter 5. It's easy to read a verse like this, especially on its own, and kind of read some of our theology back into the verse. Uh, Assuming Jesus is piling the law onto us, he's he's putting a heavy burden onto us so that we'll realize we can never do it without him, that we need his grace in order for uh, his righteousness to be given to us. And, And that is true. We cannot be righteous on our own. We need his grace and his righteousness to be given to us. It's true, but not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is is to show that all of a Christian's life needs to be marked by a way of being in the world that that aligns with uh, who God is, what he wants, what he'll do when he returns. And because this is a a righteousness that aligns with who God is, it can't just be external. It's got to be internal as well. It can't just be conformity to a list of behaviors. This verse is not about how we're sinners and we need Jesus. That's true. But again, not the point. This, This verse is saying, hey, you found Jesus. Now what? How does he want you to live? It's not an impossible demand. Jesus is not saying, hey, all I'm asking for is total perfection. He's just giving us a performance target. Say, look, righteousness, this is where you should be going. Because this kind of righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, is about about wholeness. It's about all of you, your heart, your attitudes, your will, your behavior. All of you in imitation of God. So, how do we do that? How do we achieve this sort of, you know, whole person righteousness, a virtue that comes from internal, uh, internal desires matching external virtue, external behavior? When I was in Boy Scouts, one of the, the merit badges that our troop leader wanted us to, uh, to earn was the, the badge for orienteering. Um, orienteering is, is euphemistically known as the sport of navigating with a map and a compass. Um, If you consider wandering lost in the wilderness with a bunch of adolescents who can't find their way through Target, a sport. Uh, These days, orienteering is known as, hey, Google, give me the directions to the nearest Taco Bell, Uh, right? I can't imagine orienteering in this, can you? Normally, at this point, I would get, like, real quiet and and meaningful, but you wouldn't be able to hear me, so I'm just going to keep shouting. So I got the orienteering merit badge. I learned how to read the map and read a topographical map and all of that stuff. Uh, And I learned how to use a compass. A compass is really handy. It's really valuable because it it always points north, right? No matter north, whichever whichever way you turn, whichever way you face, no matter how many circles you walk in while you're trying to find the cache of, you know, the lunch supplies, no matter what you're doing, that that compass needle is always going to point that way. Uh, unless you've broken it or you put a super strong magnet next to it, it's, it's going to point in the right direction. The compass shows you which way you want to go. It, it orients you. That's why it's called orienteering. And the funny thing about a compass is that it never gets mad at you for not being there yet. 
You know, you pull out a compass and it never says, oh my gosh, you're still wandering. <laughs> and it never watches you get off track and then condescendingly says, recalculating. <laughs> right? A compass just faithfully points north. So if you know where you're going, you can use the compass to help you get there. The entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, especially the first chapter, chapter 5, is working in that exact same way. This is a sermon. This is, the sermon is not designed to castigate us, to condemn us for not being there already. It's designed to orient us toward what wholehearted devotion to God looks like. And because it's orienting us towards wholehearted devotion, when we get disoriented or misaligned towards that, then the sermon says, hey, like a compass, uh, let me show, the, show you the direction you're supposed to be traveling in. You're supposed to be headed this way. Wholehearted devotion to God, whole orientation towards God would look like this. And the needle on this particular compass of the Sermon on the Mount consistently, it constantly, it always points to the very character of God himself. If we had the time to dig back through the six examples from the Old Testament that Jesus explained, we would see this same wholeness or singularness uh, in God himself in all of these. God does not murder. He's forgiving. He doesn't abandon his commitments. He stays faithful to his covenants. He keeps his word. He gives even to those who dishonor him. He loves even his enemies. Jesus in this teaching is emphasizing the internal over the external. God cares about who we are at a heart level. He cares about all of us. Wholehearted orientation towards God means being the same thing on the inside as on the outside. So he's calling us to be singular in who we are wholly devoted to God, living in alignment with what is God like? That's what I want to grow to be like. What does God want? That's what I want to learn to want. What will God do when he returns? That's what I want to learn how to do now. And look, along the way, we're not going to be flawless. But every time we wander off the trail, we can reorient ourselves to God's call using passages like the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, uh, to point us back like a compass towards north, towards God's character, his will, his kingdom. So we know which direction we're supposed to be going in. We can't be flawless, not in this life, but we can be perfect. If by perfect... You understand we mean wholly oriented towards God. And we don't see this any more clearly, I don't think, in Jesus' own life than we do in the garden. Uh, in the garden of Gethsemane, before his crucifixion, we see Jesus wrestling with the direction that he's being pointed in. And even coming to the point of saying to God, if there's any other way. But ultimately coming back to the point of saying, okay, not not my will, but your will. Not my direction, but your direction. Jesus wasn't going to wander off in his own direction, but was going to remain 
wholly oriented towards God. And, and because he did, because he had given himself wholeheartedly to God and obeyed perfectly because of it, walked with God, it's his perfect obedience that's given to us by grace so that we ourselves can be transformed to be wholly oriented toward God. We won't do it perfectly, but Jesus isn't demanding total perfection. All I'm asking, Jesus says, is wholehearted devotion. I want all of you, not just your outside obedience, but your heart. All I'm asking is for you to point towards, towards me. And when you get off, come back. All he's asking of you is your heart. So will you give it to him? Holy. Let's pray. Father, it is in your love for us and Jesus' faithfulness to us that our hearts respond with faithfulness, our own responding faithfulness and love. And we pray uh, through the indwelling power of your Holy Spirit given to us by grace through our faith in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We pray that you would bring together all the scattered parts of ourselves, all the warring desires and the conflicting emotions that you would make us, draw us together into integrity and unity, into wholeness before you. And may our wholehearted devotion to you draw us away from all of those things that call to us. And being wholly devoted to you, may we be found to be pure on the day when Christ returns. We pray in his name.